0: Chris says, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in this morning and and they said, you don't own the company anymore. I said, you're kidding me.
1: Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of dealmakers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Brian Smith. Brian has charted his own course to become one of the great entrepreneurial success stories of our time. In 1978, he imported six pairs of sheepskin boots from Australia with a dream to build a business where every American would eventually be wearing the product. That's how one of the world's most recognizable brands began. And sales of UGG products have exceeded a billion dollars in each of the past six years, Today, Brian enjoys guiding entrepreneurs and business professionals on their journeys to success by sharing lessons he learned while building the UG brand. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I'm excited to have uh, have you on, Brian. Uh, you know, uh, listeners, Brian and I met a couple of years back uh, when I when I saw him speak at a in an event in LA. And we sort of you know, spoke afterwards and hit it off and ended up exchanging books. And then I brought him into New York to speak to entrepreneurs organization, in New York. And he had such a great entrepreneurial story, uh, and a wonderful journey of building, you know, uh, you know, as you heard a billion dollar plus, uh, uh, brand from nothing. Um, so we're going to be talking about that. And of course this is a deals podcast. So we're going to be talking about some of the, some of the types of, uh, deals, uh, he did along the way and, uh, and also, uh, you know, the ones that worked and that failed. And I think Brian had said to me at some point that, you know, he doesn't actually consider himself to be really great at deals. So we'll, we'll delve into that as well, which is uh, <laughs> <laughs> how it's you so build well. a billion-dollar brand without being great at deals. So this is great. So, so, Brian, before we get to, uh, you know, the, the story of Uggs and what you're doing now, uh, I want to take you back. And when you were a little kid growing up, what did you want to be? Because uh, I don't know, my guess is running a billion dollar you know, uh, company and then selling it uh, may not have been on your mind when you were a kid, but maybe it was. I don't know. You tell me.
0: No, I was not, not very entrepreneurial when I started out. I, I also wasn't very career oriented. Um, and when I left high school, my uh, dad finally put the pressure on me to get a A good steady job, so I joined an accounting firm and and began studying to become a chartered accountant, which is equivalent to a CPA here in America. And uh, boy, I hated it. (laughs) But my nature is not to give up, so I uh, did that for ten years until I graduated. And I quit the day I did graduate because I was sick of corporate, and uh, I really had this this feeling to go out and do something for myself so you
1: know the second question i often ask on the podcast is is what was your first real business however you consider that and so in that case was was ug your first real business or did you have any any kind of business
0: that? yeah no it was the first one but you know even when i was an accountant i can remember being in line at the sandwich shop and i'd be counting how many people were in line and what the speed of turnover was for making sandwiches and i'd Calculate the profit of a sandwich, and 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 try and figure out if that would be a good business. You know, so I I was always really intrigued by you know the break-even point of of how many X's do you have to sell at certain profit to make a you know pay all the overheads and start to make make a living. So I I think that inquisitiveness was what turned me into being an entrepreneur.
1: Uh it's great. So I definitely want to want uh, you to know, tell that story but before before we get there let's just uh, let people know what you do and now because uh you know I know you, you got this amazing book out on uh, uh on the birth of a brand that you do in speaking uh tell us a little right. bit about what you what you do and now uh, you know after you've sold the company uh some year, you know a few years back.
0: Yeah well I, I make my living speaking from the stage and I love it. But- and I never intended to be a speaker, but when I wrote my book about building the Ugg brand you know, called the birth of a brand, it was such a hit that everybody kept saying, oh my God, you got to go on stage, Brian, and publicize this. So I was drawn to speaking, um, sort of kicking and screaming, but it turns out I'm really good at it. And uh, audiences love the messages that I send out because they're very inspirational and motivational. And, Differing from most speakers who say, you know, I built this and I sold it for millions and I built that and I sold it for more millions, I talk about the underbelly of the entrepreneurial um, path, which is where did you screw up? And, and here, here's my story. Don't feel bad. You can't possibly be worse off than I was. <laughs> and, and that's what I think is the, the draw for people to really like me on stage.
1: Well, no question. And I've seen you a couple of times that, like I said, you know, in the intro, uh, after I saw you in LA, I brought to, you know, to New York and, you know, and, and I agree. Uh, so the story is one of uh, my
0: favorite talks, by the way.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and people have loved it and it's a great entrepreneurial story. So yes, yeah, so let's, let's get into it a little bit. So, you know, so, so you quit the day after you get, uh, you know, uh, licensed or whatever they call it out there as a chartered accountant. Uh, right. And uh, uh, after 10 years and you you come You come to the states and you, and you decide you're going to sell sheepskin boots so tell us about how that happened
0: the, even that was a process you know and, and i i've i got to tell you i'm always guided by my inner spirit, you know and it sort of speaks to me in the form of goosebumps every time I have a good idea or a new initiative or something and I remember figuring what what could i do and and I just heard the Brand new Pink Floyd song and it was you know and then one day you find 10 years have got behind you no one told you when to run you missed the starting gun and I got goosebumps there and realized shit I'm, I'm been running on the spot for 10 years and a few weeks later I got more goosebumps when I was meditating trying to figure out what I do and, and I thought wow all the big trends are coming from California So I decided, okay, I'm going to listen to the Goosebumps. I'm going to California. I'm going to find the next big thing to bring back to Australia. And I did. And I was in California for three or four months looking for, you know, the next big thing. And I remember being up at Malibu surfing because, you know, that had always been a big dream of mine. And uh, it was October, November, and the, the, the wind was getting cold and the water was chilly, and I was pulling on my sheepskin boots on the beach, and I went, oh, there are no sheepskin boots in America, and one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear, so that was another huge goosebump moment, and and so I did my first deal. I called up a manufacturer in Australia and uh, bought six pairs of samples from him and got a deal to be his distributor, and that was really the birth of, of UGG. So
1: let, let, let me stop you there. Let's just talk about that first deal, right? So you're, you know, uh, how old are you at this point? 29. All right. So you're 29. It's 1978. You, you know, you, you, you go to California. Now you call this uh, manufacturer in Australia and you say, hey, I'm a 29-year-old kid. I want to be your distributor in, in the US. How does that deal get done?
0: Well, he didn't want to do it at first, uh, but, you know, luck plays such a great part in, in everything. And, uh, he, you know, he took down all my details and he called up, uh, the department of trade in Perth in Western Australia and was trying to get some information on me. And by pure fluke, he happened to talk to a a buddy of mine who I played rugby with before I left. (laughs) And, uh, he gave me the greatest, uh, you you know, recommendation. And, and so, the deal was done purely out of luck because there were a lot of other people in America looking to buy boots from him. So he said,
1: "Ah, so it's great." Okay, so now you have a you have a manufacturer lined up, but you've just you know you've just ordered samples for six pairs. What happens then?
0: Well, I I was with a buddy. Uh, we were going to start this together, and we realized we needed capital, you know, to buy you know five hundred pairs of samples, uh, you know, five hundred pairs of product, and uh, my roommate overheard me talking and said, Hey, there's some guys at my office, you know, looking for investments. And just like that, without a business plan or anything in writing, we just on the enthusiasm that I had for how big it was going to be, they put in 20 grand, which I believe in today's terms is about 70,000. So it was a lot of money. And uh, we did a 50-50 deal and uh, started business that way.
1: I love it. So What's become, you know, a a billion dollar plus in revenue company started on a, uh, you know, getting a manufacturer through luck, a luck of him uh, speaking to somebody you knew who knew you. And then and then, you know, a buddy of yours and a a roommate and 20 and $20,000. So uh, so so they put in 20,000, they get 50 percent of the company. Uh, Any kind of uh, uh, documentation on that? How, How did you do that deal? Quote, unquote.
0: Uh, yeah, we. I mean, we went to the lawyers and got a partnership yeah. agreement drawn up. Great. So uh, it, it, that, that capital lasted us for a couple of years because it wasn't an instant hit. You know, the first retailers, um, you know, no shoe stores wanted to know about sheepskin in California. and But the surf shops were really keen because all the California surfers who'd been to Australia on their surf trips had brought some back for their buddies. So within the surf market, it was really well known. So that that's why Doug and I, did, you know, my buddies decided to you know raise the money and bring in five hundred pairs, and so we went back to the surf shops who you know told us it was going to be so fantastic to sell them all, and they go, oh man, well you know congratulations, but we couldn't sell them in our store. We only sell surfboards and trunks and you know sandals. You know, good luck with the shoe stores, man. So. Our first year sales was 28 pairs, if you can believe that.
1: So that's a, that's a great lesson, right? Everybody says they're interested to laugh the writer. You know, it's a great idea to yeah, laugh the writer chat. Yeah, jab, right? we
0: should have asked for orders up front. <laughs> but then again, if I had asked for orders up front, we, nobody would know about UGG because I wouldn't have done it.
1: Right, right, right. Because people would have, people would have said no, right?
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So what happened, what happens from there? So you have, you have minimal sales in the first year, these uh, people you expected to buy, don't buy. What happens then?
0: Yeah. Well, I got, you know, three, three years of summer jobs, you know, cause it was just dinkling along 5,000, 10,000. The third year I think we did 20,000 and our capital ran out. And uh, that was like the first time I thought about giving up the business, but uh, I did a, an interesting thing. I, I I had a beer with one of my buddies uh, who owned a surf shop and I was telling him, you know, my dilemma that sales weren't happening and he and he called out to all these little young 12, 13 year old grommets you know, who stored their surfboards in his shop. And he said, what do you guys think of UGG? And they all went, oh man, they're so fake. Those models in those ads, they can't surf. And I realized I'd been sending the wrong message to my target market. So I, got a couple of young pro surfers who, who are just, you know, they're just 16, years old, just about to turn pro. And I started running ads with them and the sales went to $200,000 <laughs> like in one season purely because I nailed the marketing image and I made it so cool. You know, if these young kids are, you know, they'd read the ads and Oh mom, I want a pair of Uggs for Christmas. And that was really what turned it around. But, in that success came another disaster. We were out of money. So the, my next deal was to split our 50% down to 25 and bring in another investor who bought in a container of Burt's, which was you know, 120,000 bucks. Okay. And so we, we did that for another three or four, uh, no, what, what, two seasons. And then sales were really starting to catch on now, California was really getting hot for UGG. but then he you know, we ran out of his money and so it you know and, and the problem is that you know he he thought he could just double his money by buying a container of boots, but he didn't realize the overhead and the marketing and all the you know stuff that goes on so he wanted out, and then I was stuck between him and getting new investors in, and the new one. Is this, you know, I'm saying, well, the trademark's worth, you know, $100,000. No, 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 the trademark's worth nothing without our money. And so we we ended up, you know, I, I, I did a deal to buy my partner out, both partners out, and uh, where I was on the hook for paying them royalties. And then I joined with a third group out of Anaheim. And th- there were three guys who were going to bankroll it for the next you know, phase, which was going to be a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And, uh, I was absolutely stoked. Even though I was only going to get 25% of the company, I now had, you know, three other guys in the business. And, and part of the deal was I I didn't have to run the company anymore. They were going to do that. All I did was go on the road and be the salesman. And, uh, you know, I thought all my problems are over now with this new round of financing and It lasted about three days. You know, I I, I fixed up the warehouse, moved all the inventory into the new building, and then I went down to Huntington Beach to my first uh, sales call as a, a, you know, 100% salesman, and I walked in the door and I think his name was Chris, says, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in this morning, and, and they said, you don't own the company anymore. I said, you're kidding me? And I couldn't wait to get out of there, you know. And part of the deal was that, that I had this little trademark lawsuit I was in that they, they wanted me to finish that before I actually got my certificate for the 25%. Okay. And, you know, I called up the guys in Anaheim. I said, what the hell are you telling people? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, you tell them I don't own the company. And they go, well, you don't, you know. You, you, you haven't finished the trademark lawsuit. And Oh, man. I just went into this huge depression. And for two or three days I I moped about, you know, having lost the business and, you know, there was a a great time to give up again, you know, after all these troubles I'd had. And uh, I um, ended up after about the third or fourth day, I remember I was turning off the television one night, you know, lying on the floor on my back and I rolled over on my hands and knees and started crawling to the bedroom. And, My wife, who was a really quiet person, just said, "You get up now and walk to bed like a man." (laughs) Scared the shit out of me, and and I I, I stood up and and I was like coming out of a fog, and I thought, "Oh my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little sheepskin company." And that is again, I I, I attribute that to my spirit inside again, uh, giving me clarity, and I slept like a baby that night, and the next day I. I had a choice, you know, what am I gonna do? And I was meditating again, you know, I'm, would I be a business broker or a real estate agent or accountant? Never, you know. And I thought, you know, I really have come to love sales. So what can I sell? And these goosebumps hit me and I thought, shit, I love Ugg boots, you know. So I, I ate humble pie and I went back up to the guys at Anaheim and said, Look, I may never own the company, but I really want to get a pair of Ugg boots on every single person's feet. And so I went back on the road and they agreed not to tell people I'd sold the company and uh, about a month later I got back to the warehouse and, and Neil the owner one of the owners he handed me a check for five thousand bucks and says so that's your commissions and that was the first money I'd ever pulled out of the business and <laughs> the next month I got a check for ten grand and the next month another check for ten thousand and I realized you know you know I, I've, I've come to sort of love all these little philosophical sayings that I've learned over the years. And, and the, in this instance, it was like your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings because here I was lost the company, but I'm making more money than ever. I'm on the road with all my surf shop buddies and I'm having a ball playing golf in the summer and surfing and, and making all this money. And uh, that became my story for the next couple of years. It was, it was amazing. So, so it's interesting. I want to like I want to break
1: down a couple of things for our listeners on the deal side, and you know what happens with the companies, and also uh, you know there was something I remember you said when uh, uh, when I heard when I heard you speak. So you know, so so this is a, an issue that a lot of companies go through, right? Raising capital, having the capital run out. Mm-hmm. How do you find other investors? Uh, you know, will the original people put in more money? You know, no, how if so, if so how do you take them out? Yeah, uh, you know, taking out partners, you talked about them, I mean, you know, that's a deal, right? How did you, you know, the, deciding to buy out your partners? And then, um, you know, so these are experiences that a lot of companies have, and, and in fact this is often, you know, it's not unusual for a founder to lose control of, you know, of a company. And you actually, you know, you actually got to the point where at, there was a point where you had zero equity left. And, and I, I don't think you specifically said it on this call, but I remember, do I remember correctly from one of your talks that, you know, when you said you went back to them, you had actually quit right uh, before your wife, uh, yeah. you, with your wife. you had told them you had originally said, I'm out of here. Wasn't that, isn't that true?
0: Pretty much. Yeah. 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 It was, I, I just went silent for three or four days. Got so, it. You know, I, I didn't quit, yeah. but I didn't also you know, come back to work either. <laughs> I
1: got it, got it. Got it. You just you just disappeared for a little while. Yeah. So so I love that. Yeah. So I love, you know, so you got through it and I love, I love the, you know, the conversation of how you get these goosebumps and how the truth comes from inside. But I also love the fact that, you know, it's great when we have people who support us and sometimes call us forth uh, in moments when we... Uh, you know, when, when, when we may not be there ourselves yet.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's very valuable.
1: That's and great.
0: the irony is that, uh, you know, here I was for the next three years out on the road and, and now I'm developing a sales force across the country. You know, I've got about 30 sales reps and business is doing really well. We've branched out of surfing and now we're into snowboarding and skiing. And uh, I was trying to figure out what are kids back in, new york and chicago and you know michigan do and and i realized that they all play hockey in the winter so i got into the hockey uh, retail market and 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 that was fantastic because you know all the moms who have to sit in the malls were, were buying ugg boots for their kids and then the moms are buying them from this for themselves and it really became a vibrant business and I made you know eighty thousand the next year, and one hundred and twenty the next year, and one hundred and fifty the next year. And you know, back then that was a shitload of money. Yeah. And I was loving loving my life as a non-owner. And over those three years, I I put up nearly two million frequent flyer miles just traveling with all the sales reps. So I was getting to know every buyer all across the country. And uh, then the weirdest thing happened, you know, but. Neil, you know the one main owner had bought out the other two guys, so he owned a hundred percent of it now. And he said, "Hey, Brian, you know, come on in next week. We're going to get the lawyers in, and we're going to issue you twenty five percent of stock." And oh man, I was in heaven because I, you know, I'd finished the trademark lawsuit and everything. And uh, we bought, you know, company cars for each other, and we got life insurance policies on each other. And I was all set to come in next week, and and my wife called me on the car phone uh, over the weekend and she goes oh brian neil's just died wow and my life crashed again because here i was on the verge of getting my company back and now i didn't own it any i still didn't have any of it and now his widow who never set foot inside the warehouse owned 100 percent of it and so i had another come to jesus meeting you know and i i uh figured, you know, my livelihoods sort of tied up here. So I went up and I talked to her the next day and said, look, I'll, get, I'll you know, offer my, my life for the next six to nine months to try and save the business. And uh, that began the longest, you know, six or eight months of my life because I had to try and raise money. And uh, the weirdest thing is that the, that the banks, even though we were now eight or nine, nearly 10 years in business, the banks are all saying, oh, it's a fad. It won't be around next year. And and I go, but wait a minute. Everybody loves these. Oh, but you've been lucky. It's, it's a fad. And so it was really, really difficult to raise money conventionally. And, uh, you know, the investment bankers that I approached, they, they saw zero income for nine months and then this huge spike for October, November, December. And that scared the heck out of them. So they weren't interested. Right. So it was went through all the way through October, you know, no, no, it was like April, May, June, July was really starting to get desperate because I had to deliver in September. My original supplier, you know, the guy that we'd been buying boots off all this time, he started to jump ship thinking I wasn't going to be able to pull it together. And I was, you know, making up all these orders, you know, 10,000 pairs. I'd send them down to him and go, Hey George, it's going to be fantastic. You trust me, I'll get the money. And he you know was a little nervous and and bit by bit, I started losing faith that he was ever going to come through and It got to september october no i'm I'm wrong again it was it was July, August, and the big trade show that kicks off the season was in september and uh the I, as a large dish, last ditch effort i I thought, who could benefit from me being alive and i I figured out that tanneries in in Australia should be really. Hot on this, and I found one who was really, really interested. But he, uh, his name was Gordon. And, uh, you know, I said, You know, I've been working with this George Bircher in in Western Australia, I just need some, you know, some skins to get started. And, and he was so close for four or five days to backing me, but he, he eventually didn't. And, uh, so I left Australia without any deal to, you know, for production. And then it was September, I had to go to the trade show and I talked to my wife, I said, you know, if we do this and we make sales, we're not going to be able to ship anything and we had about two and a half million bucks worth of orders on the books and uh, I had no idea where we were going to get production from. So I ended up um, going up to the trade show and setting up and putting all last year's product out. And in the meantime my sales rep had told me about another group that was selling sheepskin boots in California and that they were a windsurfing company and I thought, yeah, well they, they can't be much competition. And so anyway, I set the booth up at the trade show and I I figured I'm gonna go find that windsurfing company and figure out where they're at and what they're selling. And I walked over to the their booth and I stopped short because there was all all of my production, everything that I'd ordered. With different labels on them, the, the the label was called Thugs, which I thought was really <laughs> appropriate. You know? and, 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 so and, I
1: mean, and they actually—do uh, I remember correctly? They actually cut a deal with your with your uh, original manufacturer, yeah, right? Wow.
0: Yeah, and and my manufacturer George never told me, so I I was totally blindsided, and. Uh, you know, I, I went through the motions of the show. I, I talked to my wife and I said, we're, we're not going to tell anybody, but on Monday after the show, we'll call all my best retailers and tell them to buy the thugs because it's our own product anyway. And so after we packed the show up, I got home back to San Diego and, and the last call I made was to Gordon at the Tanner. And I said, listen, Gordon, you know, I really appreciate all the help trying to get this going, but George has done an end run around me and, I, you know, I'm out of business. And he was sad and we went to bed, you know. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings and and I pick it up and he goes, Brian, it's Gordon. Screw George, I'll get you all the boots you need. <laughs> and, and just like, how's this for a deal? No handshake, nothing in writing. I sent all the patterns down and he duplicated them, sent them out to about four or five manufacturers and he cranked up his tannery. And after about two weeks, we started getting 2,000 pairs on a Friday, then 5,000 pairs. And then all through uh, October, November, December, every Friday, we got 5,000 pairs in. And at least we stayed alive. We threw away over a million dollars worth of orders at wholesale. and uh, But the thing is, we stayed alive. And the product was pretty shitty compared to the other stuff that I'd had. I yep. had so many years to work on product development, but didn't matter because there was boots out there with UGG labels, and UGG was still alive. So that was just you know one of the it was the best deal. Just just one Aussie to another saying, "Hey, you got screwed. I'm not going to let that happen." You know, wow. And that became the deal of the century for me. Wow,
1: and and so so uh, and he continued to be your manufacturer for uh, a while after that right uh, or yes, connected yes, to other. wow all the
0: way all the way through till i sold the company yeah wow
1: that's that, that that's amazing and and listen you know that's you know it's funny because there are industries in which you know, it's rare that people do deals on handshakes in these days, but, but it still happens. I mean, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the Diamond District in New York, they, 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 they lend people diamonds all the time. You know, it's, uh, you know and, and then even in other industries, uh, you know, that's why business relationships matter and reputation matters. So The, the, um,
0: rela- the relationships are critical. And, yeah. and my best deals have all been done with people who had good intent, you know. It doesn't matter what documents you can prepare for a deal if someone's out to screw you, it's going to, it's going to happen.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, Brian, one of the things I say as a lawyer, which, you know, you may not, you know, you may think I'd be big on, I mean, I, I am big on documenting deals, but I say the, the documenting only serves two purposes. One is the one that people think about, which is that it tells you what your legal rights are. If somebody does end right. up screwing you and you can sue them and whatever, but, but the but the truth is that's, that, that's not what you want to be doing. Uh, you know, and often if somebody's a real crook, you you know, they're not gonna have any money. You can't find them, whatever it is. So, um, the, the second thing it does, though, that's important uh, is that it helps get what, what us lawyers call a meeting of the minds. Like it really like the process of documenting a deal will help to try to make sure that there was a true understanding, common understanding. So there wasn't any misunderstanding. But yeah. I always say I always say, listen, once the deal is signed, ideally, you know, in the old days, when I first started practicing, say put in a file drawer. Now I say, you know, you, you, just, you, you file it online. And hopefully, you never have to look at that document again because business deals are made on an ongoing basis based upon a relationship, not a based upon not based upon legal agreements.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And and having that commonality of of destiny, you know, is is the critical thing. You both have to figure out what the goals are. And I wrote in my book at the very end, you know, because that that was you know ten fifteen years after I sold the company, and. I realized, you know, as much as I hated these people at the time, and there were several, you know, investment groups that I really hated, I realized that, you know, they were all trying to do the best deal they could for themselves. Yep. And I didn't take the time to understand what their end goal was, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their end goal was quite clear when they signed the documentation. and They weren't out to screw me. They just figured out where they were going and I was just a part of the piece you know and so I've come to to not look at them as crooks anymore but people I should have got to know better before I did the deal to try and understand are we both seeing the same mountain that we're going to climb because you know quite often I'm looking at my mountain and they're looking at theirs and (laughs) eventually you got to split up you know
1: that's right. That's right. And, you know, I always talk about in negotiations, you know, do the, you know, what are your objectives? What are their objectives? And do the objectives meet? And just because they don't meet doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means they have different objectives.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff. So, so eventually, uh, you know, not only were you saved there and did you get that, um, you know, some, you stayed alive by putting out some product, but then, you know, you really, uh, you really grew the company, and uh, and I don't think anybody's anybody's heard of Thugs in a while, right?
0: No, they they were. I don't even know where their product ended up because I never saw them in the marketplace. And here's the kicker, right? So after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year, two really weird things happened. Um, the customs broker screwed up, and he shipped two thousand pairs of Thugs to me. And 1,000 pairs of my boots up to the other guy, you know, and he was up in San Clemente, which was about an hour away. So I agreed to go up and swap them around. And, you know, I I was driving back home and I was thinking, how come we couldn't keep boots in our warehouse for 24 hours? Every Saturday morning we were stripped clean because all the retailers were driving into our factory picking up whatever they could to take back to their stores. So we were clean every Saturday morning. And the Thug's Warehouse, which was twice as big as ours, was floor to ceiling full of sheepskin boots after Christmas. Mm. And that's when I realized the loyalty of my customers was so strong that they threw away nearly $2 million worth of sales at retail rather than, you know, join with somebody who they knew knocked me off. So that was an incredible revelation on the you know the power of customer service. But the bigger fluke was that the life insurance policy paid out on Neil and it was just enough money for me to buy the company a hundred percent back from his widow, where <laughs> she got full value for the season's profits, plus all full value for all the assets. And had I left it to her and walked away at the beginning of the year, she would have got zero. So just having the faith to hang in there against all those odds paid off for me where I now I was still broke, but I owned a hundred percent of UGG again. I mean, who, who could have ever seen that coming?
1: Yeah. Who would have, I mean, listen, if, if it didn't really happen to you and it was in a movie, people would, would say, Oh, that's not realistic. That could ever happened in real life. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. No, um, it was, it was amazing. It was, I love it. And, and, then- and I feel blessed and lucky, but boy, I could have walked out several times. During the course of building the UGG brand, there were so many times when it was looking hopeless that I could have walked away. But you know, just having the faith that there's another deal that can be made that can keep me alive is really what every entrepreneur has to have—the the passion and the persistence for. Because you know, it, as long as you got the passion, there's a way to make it work.
1: You know, and and that's why I think uh, your speaking in your book resonates so much with entrepreneurs because, you know, I don't know, and you know, and, and Brian, you, you know this about me that I'm very active in the entrepreneurial community through entrepreneurial organization, yeah. and other ways. So I see, you know, and my clients are entrepreneurs, so you know, I hear the stories, and 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 you know, what it seems like from the outside is never the case, and everybody, everybody's had a journey. Uh, you know, may not be like yours; it's different, it's their own journey, but. There's always ups and downs on the path. I've had my ups and downs as an entrepreneur. Uh, everybody has, yeah. So I, think, so I think people really resonate with that. And 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 I think uh, one of the things that makes us different about entrepreneurs is that, uh, you know, people who are not truly sure entrepreneurs would, I mean, there were so many opportunities in your journey that went with it. You know, it would have been so easy to quit.
0: Yeah, for sure. But do you want to hear the best deal I made?
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. There's a little bit of a backstory here, right? So when I started out in those first couple of years where I, I was clueless, I was selling boots out of the back of my van at Malibu and, uh, had a really good little retail business going and two or three spaces up was another guy called Doug Otto. And he was selling these neoprene sandals. They were called triple, they were called triple deckers cause they were pink, yellow, and pink neoprene with a, you know, like a thong type thing. And, uh, we used to see each other on the road for years, you know, and we'd always joke with each other. Hey, you should buy me out. You know, Oh, I can't afford it. <laughs> and we would joke around like that. Well, fast forward, um, to, you know, 18 years and I've just done a deal with, uh, I, I was referred to Oprah via, uh, Trudy Styler who is Sting's wife cause have been shipping boots to her for years. And she, one day called me up and said, Brian, I need a big favor. I've just been to a seminar. It's changed my world. And can you get me the most perfect set of boots? And here's the address, you know, Oprah Winfrey. And so I sent boots to her and she immediately ordered more boots for everyone in her staff. And, and uh, you know, we, we had developed a really good image with the product and we'd just come off a $15 million season And the pre-orders were looking like it was going to be a twenty million to $25 million season coming up next year. And I had absolutely no way to finance this increase in production. Mm. And so I knew I was probably going to be out of business again, (laughs) but I was uh, going to a trade show called The Super Show in Atlanta, Georgia, and my buddy Doug, who... I I mentioned earlier, he got the license for Tiva sandals. You're probably familiar with them. Sure. And he took his company public on Teva and I knew he was sitting on about 25, 30 million bucks in cash, right? Well, I arrived in Atlanta airport and way up the other end of, of the baggage claim is Doug. And I got those goosebumps again. And I went, oh shit, it's perfect. So, I walked up to him, and you know we saw each other, and we high fived and I said, Doug, if ever we're going to do it, man, now's the time. You die every every winter. my company dies every summer. Let's put them together, man, just buy me out. And we had the accountants talking that afternoon, and you know, with all the legal documentation that needed to be done by the end of the season, he bought me out for cash so it was like going public without going public. It was phenomenal. Wow.
1: Wow. So, you know, the, I mean, there's so many themes that that I hear in your story. You know, obviously, there's a the theme of, of, of persistence and always fighting through and getting up. But also, you know, every deal that you've done, uh, really, like we said earlier, I mean, that's another long-term relationship, right? You know, one of the things I talk I- about... I talk about authentic negotiating, authentic deal making, but I also talk about authentic business relationships. Yeah. And and, and you know, for me I feel like uh, you know, that's a big part of your story, right? These these aren't strangers. Uh you know, in every situation it's somebody that you you know, you knew or you got to know and this is you know, your final sale was a guy you knew for a long time.
0: Yeah, it comes comes back to trust, you know. The you know, Gordon Jackson at the tannery trusted me, you know just uh Doug trusted me to not try and do a weird deal around him and and every, everything just went beautifully because of the relationships
1: great stuff i love i love the story it's really uh, so listen you know folks if if you have an opportunity to uh see Brian speak if he's you know coming to your area I mean, you know, you've gotten a piece of it here, but you know, it's such a, it's such an inspiring story, and also his book, uh, uh, "The Birth of a Brand," you know, is 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 just a brilliant, brilliant read. Um, so, so Brian, yeah. before I before I ask you my last question, um, you know, if people do want to find out more about you, uh, find out about you speaking, find out about the book, or anything else you got going on, uh, what's the best place for them to uh, to uh, find you, or reach you, or call you, whatever?
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, the book is called "The Birth of a Brand." And I just recently uh, did the audio version because so many people today want to listen to the book rather than read it. Sure. And it was going to be my chance to revise and update it, you know, when I did the audio. And I read it through to do the edits. And and in the end, I changed zero words. It was, Mm -hmm. I mean, the book is so damn good as as a roadmap for entrepreneurs. And not just starting out, but it does include that, but also when you start to get into the five ten, fifteen million dollar range, there's a whole set of different problems come up which I help readers through. So that's called the Birth of a brand on Amazon, and uh, as far as speaking goes, you know obviously the you know the e o group that you brought me into is a group of business people who absolutely love my story, so if anyone's listening, who would like me to come and speak to their company or their association or whatever, you can find me at UGGFounder.com founder, UGG and uh, all the contact information is there on my speaker page and I would love to hear from you if you think I can show up and and give you a really entertaining story for an hour or so. Oh, that's great. So my my last
1: question, it's interesting that I, I asked the same last question of every guest on the podcast, and I feel like, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about it in your case, but I'd love to I'd love to ask it anyway. So, you know, uh, as you know, uh, uh, one of my highest values is authenticity. And it's the reason my book is called Authentic Negotiating. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we, um, you know, and, and for me, authenticity is something. I,
0: by the way, your, your, your book is one of the best books that I've ever read on negotiating. So, um, I've uh, given it out to a bunch of people. It's a f- phenomenal book.
1: Uh Brian, I, pr- I appreciate you saying that. I, I really do. Uh, that's so nice of you. Um, you know, and so for me, the conversation of authenticity is, uh, is not about, you know, morals or ethics or some outside force. It's, it is that internal self-awareness. All right. And making your, you know, business, you know, you, you talk about the goosebumps you got, right. And for me, that's a signal of what's authentic and, yeah. you know, and what's guiding. So that's why I feel like you talked about it a lot, but, but I'd love to hear any last thoughts you have on, you know, the importance of authenticity and how it's, uh, you know, how it's guided your life and, and maybe how, you know, how do you tap into that authenticity? What do you have any practices or ways uh you know
0: that you stay aligned? Sure. I, I've been a big believer in this spirit inside me, you know, and I believe it's in every single one of us, you know, that I don't know if any, you know, any of your listeners are Bible people, but you know, over and over again, Jesus said that. You know, the kingdom of God is within you. And I, what I think he meant by that, he was being very literal. There is a spark of this pure God in every one of us. And that is an infallible truth meter. And uh, every time I get really perplexed or down or whatever, I meditate and I go within and I, and I just ask for the truth of a, a situation. You know, what, what the hell should I do here? And it's uncanny how after a while, it doesn't happen instantly, but after a while you just get this feeling that this is the way I should go. And I've followed that and and I'll tell you what, there's times when I haven't followed, I've had the feeling and I go, no, that's not right, it just can't be. And I've gone against it and every time I've gone against it, I've paid the price, but every time I've gone with it, things seem to have worked out. So there is some sort of internal guide in us that knows the direction. We just got to get better at tuning into it.
1: I, I I so believe that as well. And, you know, and it's interesting. We've talked about some of the themes in your story of the persistence in the business relationships and whatever, you know, but at least for me, and you can tell me if you disagree, you know, the single biggest theme is you trusting that inner wisdom and, you know, and tapping into that guidance. And I think uh, even with all the other stuff, uh, the level of success you have with UG and now as a speaker, et cetera, uh, you know, wouldn't have been the same, wouldn't have been close to the same if it weren't for uh, that trust and that tapping into that authentic place.
0: Yeah, no, you know. nobody, nobody would have heard of ARG if I hadn't trusted in the first time. I love it.
1: Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Corey, it was a thrill. Thanks so much for having me.
1: And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer, signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at FuelingDeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.